0: My cousin, her granddaughter lives at Montajuli, just behind Ayers Rock, or Uluru. Uh, she's nine years old, she's never been to school. And that's the reality, right? And that's the world I come home and I try to grapple with, okay, what is the reality? How can we actually deliver things?
1: Welcome to Listen, Learn, Respect, a new podcast from the National Apology Foundation coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turbul and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd, and I'm co-chair of the Foundation. We're going to cover more Closing the Gap targets than usual with our next guests because their profession can have an impact on all of these. Targets 7, 10, 11 and 15, which we will explore shortly in more detail. But firstly, I would like to introduce Josh Cremer, a one-year and Kalkadoon barrister with a national legal practice. He specialises in class actions and native title. He and his wife established a new scholarship for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women studying law at Griffith University. The scholarship's inaugural recipient is Alicia George from Badu Island. Joshua and Alicia, thank you for being with us today on Listen, Learn, Respect.
0: Really looking forward to it. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. Not at all. So Josh, tell us why this scholarship is important to you.
0: I've been very fortunate. Uh, I um, have been a barrister now for 12 years and so I've had probably close to 20 years in the legal profession as a student and then working in a number of different roles before I went to the bar and diversity is really important. Uh, diversity in uh, gender is, is one area, but particularly for me as an Aboriginal person, um, that cultural diversity, and you know, I see that lacking in the legal profession. I've worked on a lot of uh, really big cases. Uh, Palm Island case, stolen wages type cases. And I was interviewing a lot of Aboriginal women and they were talking about experiences with, you know, very traumatic experiences and really difficult um, yeah, for me as an Aboriginal man to sit there and hear that. And not culturally appropriate as well. And I was really keen to encourage Indigenous women to come into the bar. And fortunately, uh, two Indigenous women, Aveline Tarago and Malia Ben, have come in the last five years. But I wanted to do more than that. And this scholarship, uh, supporting Indigenous female law students towards the end of the uh, university degree at Griffith University, who have an aspiration in going to the bar, was really uh, another way I could make a contribution to increasing that diversity at the bar and hopefully at the bench at some stage.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And Alicia, what impact do you have with your degree? Like, it's a double degree, right?
2: Yeah, so I'm studying a dual degree in law and international relations. Um, and I, at the moment, am planning on going to the bar and I just really want to make an impact in the spaces that Josh has also been able to um, in like Indigenous rights and just really empowering um, Indigenous people to use um, the, the legal system as, as their tool of empowerment. And um, I just really want to give them that access as well. So I'd love to make an impact in that way.
1: And. Before you became the recipient of this scholarship um, that uh, Josh and his wife Kara have put together for Griffith, uh, had you thought about going to the bar?
2: I actually hadn't thought of it. It was kind of like a dream that I thought it just someone like me wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so it's been really helpful and powerful to have Josh and both Kara just really encourage me and make it a reality that I actually can pursue this it's something that I wouldn't have thought I'd been able to
1: so the scholarship is really making an impact I guess this leads us to the first closing the gap target that we're going to talk about today which is number seven youth are engaged in employment and education how do you see the number of young first nations people being engaged in employment education increasing Josh did you want to kick off on that
0: yeah, I do and I just want to talk about sort of my experience. So, I spend a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time since 2016, 2017 uh working across remote parts of Australia. A lot of time in the Kimberley's uh and the Dampier in WA. I'm up to um I'm regularly up to the Northern Territory as well and I've covered a lot of these areas, a lot of places people would not ordinarily go to. And I do want to just talk about how um there is a effectively some people in regional remote areas are really don't have the same opportunities that we do. And that's a real challenge for me. I come home after sort of two weeks in, in the Kimberleys and I walk back into my you know, beautiful home, beautiful family. There's no a nice bed, all these things. And I feel like I live in two worlds. Mm. You know, some of my clients are literally living in sheds. Mm. Uh, in the Northern Territory or sheds in in Western Australia in 50 degree heat in the Kimberleys. And while I, you know, I don't have to worry about food for my children, I don't have to worry about security, I don't even have to worry about having a car to be able to go into the shops. And that's not the same experience for everybody. And, And that's really important. I think whenever we're going to deliver programs, we have to understand that what fits well in Southeast corner of Queensland or south, uh, the Southern Australia or Eastern Australia might not necessarily fit well in these some of these remote areas. And that's really where some of this disadvantage is really stuck. And there is a lack, lack, lack of opportunity in those areas. And one of the things I want to point to, and I've talked about it regularly, for, for example, the Northern Territory government don't deliver secondary education in uh, the homelands or in the Aboriginal communities. It's only in the the, main, uh, the big main centers.
1: So when we think that we have universal education in this country, you, you're saying that we, that we don't.
0: No. And I'll give you an example. My um, cousin, her granddaughter lives at Montajuli, just behind Ayers Rock, or Uluru. Uh, she's nine years old. She's never been to school. And, and you know, you, you and that's the reality, right? Mm. And. And and that's the world I come home and I trying to grapple with. Okay, what is the reality? How can we actually deliver things? So, uh, so the the first one around education uh, is and employment is really the critical piece. For me, travelling across to these communities, it's actually the the lack of ability to participate in the mainstream economy which inhibits people. And there's a number of things that you need. You need to b- have a base level of education. For example, you need to be able to read and write English. Not everyone in, in the communities can do that. Some people speak five or six Aboriginal languages, but are illiterate and enumerate. A lot of the people I'm going to see in the Northern Territory, they're elders. They're um, probably over the age of 60, about 25 of them in the next two weeks. 80% of them are literate and numerate. So you need those. That's one of the foundational skills you need. Uh, and then you need employment and uh, you need to be able to engage in the economy through employment or productivity or something where you can get a return from the time or the services you deliver. So these, um, uh, you know, this particular closing of the gap target is I think really one of the most critical ones because if you miss that opportunity to engage as a young person, it's very hard to get, get the skills you require as you get older um, to be able to effectively, you know, earn an income and and change the circumstances in which you're in.
1: Yeah, Alicia, I'm interested in your perspective. Um, the next closing the gap target that um, we we want to discuss here today is that there are two targets, ten and eleven, which call for adults and young people not to be overrepresented in the criminal justice system. I mean, the sorts of disparities that um, Josh was just referring to surely are. An integral part of the overrepresentation we see uh, in criminal justice. What what do you think is stopping improvement? What are, what are the major impediments that are in place at the moment that prevent people uh, from uh, winding up in the criminal justice system? I think it is
2: largely linked to the lack of access to education. The um, in these remote communities because of European settlement, they were forced out here. And now, just because how is it set up, they're not able to access this education, they're not able to have um, good living conditions, and it just all contributes to this over-representation in the justice system. And I just think there's a huge link between this access to education. I think even, um, just talking from my experience, I grew up in Rockhampton, um, and my mum is Indigenous, and we were just... I would just look at like people around me, like other Indigenous students or people that not in uni or school or anything. And I was just like, there's just such this disparity between our lifestyles and it's just like a generation away. Um, and I was just really, I think to me that really stood out that this access to education is
1: really important for, for this target as well. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, in Rocky, it's a massive regional center. Yeah. Um, so the fact that you can witness that kind of disparity in a place like Rockhampton yeah. um, just shows how how embedded it must be in other yeah. places. Do you think the people on the East Coast are sufficiently aware of what's going on in the centre?
0: Yeah. that Look, the, the Royal Commission um, into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody is really the, the basis. I think it's the most significant analysis into the issue. And there's a lot of criticism out there about implementing the recommendations, but I'm not sure many people who make that criticism have actually read the report because when you read it, you understand the reports in two parts. There's the first part which looks at all the causes of crime and all the causes of overrepresentation, representation and they are social, economic and historical factors. We, we know what they are. It's not rocket science, right?
1: The data's there. Yeah, the yeah. data's
0: there and the data's continually there. But the recommendations don't actually deal with that. Um, the recommendations deal with um, reducing the risk of people dying in custody. That it's, it's a complete disconnect. And there's roughly just over 40,000 people in prison in uh, Australia. And 13,000 of those, in terms of the adult population, are Indigenous. Well, we're only 3% of the population. We're 30% of the, mm. the, the prison population. There's the, there's the over- representation there. When you actually can see the data in front of you and understand what it means, And does, it goes back to, you know, those social economic factors, which we just haven't addressed effectively.
1: So what fundamental changes need to be made to the justice system in order to address this?
0: Look, well, I could get in some really big ones. (laughs) Go for it. Well, you know, I could talk about, you know, the European model and the more of a therapeutic type justice and... Indigenous women are the fastest growing prison population in the country. Mm. And um, we saw some changes in the last few years to domestic violence legislation in Queensland.
2: It would make stalking easier to prosecute and broaden the definition of domestic violence to include patterns of behavior.
0: That has actually resulted in more women going into prison because they're seen as, um, now they're being uh, identified by the police as the offender when you start to understand laws and the consequences they have, it's not always as it seems. Now, um, there's some base level issues there. So, and, and when you look at the data for uh, youth justice, 80% of the kids sitting in in the detention centres are actually on remand. So that just means we can't find a suitable location to house mm. them outside of prison.
1: Did you say 80%? Yeah, about 80% That's are sitting out
0: there on remand. Um and so we can't find suitable accommodation to, to house them. And it's a similar type of circumstance for a lot of the uh, adult Indigenous population in prison. The stats will say they're there on, um, generally for lower level offences. Uh, they're there for property type offences. So, you know, things like stealing and petty, petty criminal offences. And because they don't have, you know, the suitable accommodation to be able to be bowed to or because they don't have sort of employment they can rely upon, they're sitting out there wasting away. And so if, if we want to talk big picture, we do need a structural change. We need to look at, okay, if it, if it costs us $80,000 or $100,000 a year to keep a person in prison, can we, mm. are we best to utilize those funds to provide them with the resources and the infrastructure that they need on the front end? It's very much like the child protection legislation, the child protection legislation says the least intrusive measures possible. Well, they never do that. Um, and the child protection legislation says you're supposed to work with the family to support them, to stop the removal of children. And we know what the causes are. We have the resource to be able to do it, but you know, this whole tough on crime, locking mm-hmm. people up, uh, is, is something that governments can't quite step away from.
1: We're going to speak now about Target 15, which is people maintain a distinctive cultural, spiritual, physical and economic relationship with their land and waters. And I know um, you've done a a huge amount of work in this space, Josh. Um, I note that by 2030, Closing the Gap is targeting a fifteen percent increase in sea areas and Australia's landmass covered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's legal rights or interests. How do we go about making that happen?
0: We're moving in a positive direction and I note in the most recent report on closing app, that is one of the one of the targets we're really working well towards. There is a there is a system in place through native title, and I think there's even there's another system which is going to be overlaid over the top and that's around the treaty processes that the federal um, government's talking about, but also the um, state governments. But Queensland, um, Victoria are also making advances on in South Australia. So, through the native title process, um, and it can be often a very difficult and long one. Um, I think the average native title claim over the period uh, is usually about seventeen to twenty years um, before it's determined. But uh, that process, ultimately, if you're successful, can achieve recognition of your rights and interests in relation to usually unallocated state land. So your national parks and those types of places as well. Um, that system could always move quicker, but I think it is effective. Um, there are, I was in court last in two weeks ago and we had a determination of no native title, which is a brutal outcome for, Mm. for people. It means the tide of history has washed away your identity. Like that's a Mm. really powerful um, situation to be part of and see people experience that. And I went through that
1: terrible day at the office. Oh, uh,
0: yeah. You're sitting in a room with 40 people and a lot of them you have a significant amount of respect for because what they've achieved in the community and, you know, on a national level, some of them and to to feel the emotion and to understand Mm -hmm. the hurt well, that, you know, that's a moment that will always stay with me. Um, and I've seen that now with three different groups, but, uh, but generally through the native title process native title claims have received have resulted in positive outcomes through generally through negotiation with the state and so that recognition is is important and the framework is there for that to happen i think what is also very exciting is um the work that will happen in the treaty space and that is um indigenous groups uh, who have recognised as having interest in relation to land, not necessarily in the native tile process, but it may be, but sitting down with governments and working on a partnership together um, to be able to have those things recognised formally. So there is some really good work happening in there. It's happened over a long period of time. It has momentum and I think things do look positive in that space.
1: What does recognition of native title mean to First Nations Australians? what what does it what does it mean? because you, you you touched on that a little yeah. bit, but I'd like to kind of delve into that.
0: there's There's a couple of parts to it. And firstly, in a legal sense, it's recognition that um, firstly, your ancestors belong to that country, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they um, and you have continued to practice the culture that they have practiced uh, over the five or six generations because we work from that sovereignty period. So that's the continuity element in, in, and in validating people's beliefs and their experiences, you can't place a price on that. Mm. You know, that's hugely significant in the context of what, of what has happened in our history. So people having that link and having the federal court actually, here's a decision to recognize that the practical part is it, of it is not necessarily ownership to land but rights and interests in relation to land so having the right to go and hunt to teach to have ceremonies you know to take take young people on there show them the country that's that's the practical application of that type of decision but there is as i say a very significant uh emotional aspect to it which we just could never never value
1: Alicia, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the scholarship and how um, and what it does for you. I know that it's not just about cash and it's actually also about access and connections and networking. Can you talk to me about how Josh and Kara's initiative has helped you in that space and what it's done for your career so far?
2: Yeah, I would probably argue that the more valuable part of the scholarship is the mentorship and the networking Um for example, just after I got the scholarship, um, the Honourable Justice Lincoln Crowley was getting appointed. The
1: 133rd judge of Queensland Supreme Court, but the first Indigenous one in all of Australia.
0: In the end, justice is what it's all about. Always was, always will be.
2: Oh, amazing. Yeah, and Josh <laughs> brought me along to the um, appointment and just through that I was able to make so many connections with barristers and judges and even from that, Um, I was able to secure a position as the research assistant for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, And even then, like Josh has been so valuable in just introducing me to anyone that um, he thinks would be valuable to connect with. And it's just law really is all about those networks and those connections. And especially um, for like someone like me, I didn't grow up with lawyers and barristers as parents, um, lived in a regional town, like coming to the city by myself. So it's really just so valuable, um, and powerful that he's been able, and Cara have been able to provide that, um, for me and for the other recipients as well.
1: So it almost enables a kind of mentorship that, Mm. um, that goes with you and walks with you along your journey in the beginning of your career. Yeah. Is there an area of specialization that you kind of want to lean into at this point?
2: Um, I'm definitely interested in just Indigenous, like human rights, that kind of area, but I'm still, still figuring it all out, but definitely passionate about helping in
1: that space as well. Oh, it's terrific. It must be amazing for you, Josh, to hear that and to see that the kind of idea that you and Cara cooked up um, one afternoon has just come to fruition in this way.
0: Yeah, two things I want to say. Firstly, we you need to try and replicate what happens for people who do have lawyers in the family. So, you know, those conversations that happen around the kitchen table or at family barbecues because you've got that network. So that's what we've tried to replicate because that is actually the most valuable thing, the mentoring and the, and those relationships with people who support you. And the other thing is Alicia's really downplaying her capabilities. I was telling her this morning she could, she could easily be on the high court. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was really uh, – it's pretty special to see um, – these amazing students coming through who are just excellent academics you know in terms of their academic results. These are really passionate, dedicated, big personalities who can go and achieve something and and you know hopefully planting that seed that yeah, you know I want to go to the bar or I want to go to the bench or I want to go to the high court. like just just empowering people to believe in that in themselves.
1: I'd certainly like to see Alicia on the high court. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I could I picture myself appearing in front of her one day. Hope she takes it easy on me. Let's hope so. <laughs> nah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't nah, go, wouldn't go easy. No, absolutely not. You know what he's capable of. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: I want to ask you a question I haven't asked anyone else in this podcast so far, um, both of you. Are you sick of being asked for your opinion on The Voice?
0: Uh, two things. <laughs> I did, I was at that point, Mm. but then I got to the point where I was like, I want to make my contribution Mm. and people want to hear what I have to say. I was at Mm. NAIDOC in Musgrave Park, um, recently and people were coming up to me, asking me and they asked me and I, and that, I, that's really important that people, you know what, Josh, what's, what about this voice? And you realize you actually have information and can interpret that information because a lot of it's legal in a way and synthesize it for people in a way that they can they'll get across the issue quickly. And so I, over the last, I've been more active actually in the last, in the more recent period than I was earlier, because people want to hear what I have to say, but I think it's also important. And a lot of the public speaking I've been doing is actually more for the the local non-Indigenous community, they want to actually be able to have something tangible and say, all right, well, I sat down I listened to Josh Creamer for an hour and you know what? There's a lot of things I never heard before and he did actually, he convinced me and Mm. it's not necessarily I'm out there trying to convince everyone to vote for it, but I'm telling you the reasons why I'm voting Mm. and what's important for me.
1: So it's almost empowering non-Indigenous Australians to have the conversation where they feel like they have a degree of fluency and your contribution is to just give them the language they can, they can use in, in navigating those discussions in a respectful way.
0: That's, that's right. And I think what really has the missing piece and, you know, the, sh- the, the sign saying yes and the, the screen grabs are great on this issue, I've found people really want content. Mm. They really want to, they've got questions in their mind They want to have those things answered and we actually, you know, we all um, need to get out there and to share that content because that actually is going to be the determining factor. I don't think it's going to be like a political campaign where you vote red or you vote Mm. blue or you vote green. It's like, actually, I want to think about this. Mm. That's what I've tried to do. What do you reckon, Alicia?
2: Yeah, I think um, it's important to ask like your Indigenous friends, Indigenous family about oh what does this mean especially if they're in the legal profession because they probably have a bit more of an understanding um but it's also important i've said to my friends like to educate yourself on what um like just don't rely on what i'm saying in my opinion but actually have a look into the issue yourself don't just go and vote blindly um actually be aware of what's happening um like i don't mind talking about it i don't mind um giving my insight on it but i'm not saying that's the that's what the answer is. I think it's important that people actually look into this issue, look into the impact that it will or it won't make. Um, but yeah, I just think it's important that people
1: are educating themselves on the issue as well. And do you feel like you've got a bit of voice fatigue at all or are you okay? I
2: think a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, i probably not as much as Josh because he probably gets more, <laughs> asked more than me. Um, but yeah, it's a bit tiring when you're just at a social thing and someone's like, so what are your thoughts on the voice?
1: <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think back to the, uh, the marriage equality debate yeah. and a lot of my gay friends got mm. really sick of being bailed up at um, barbecues and asked, oh, would you get married if you could get married? And yeah, I mean, it's like such a hypothetical question and I can just imagine that you know, there'd be plenty of kitchen table mm. or other conversations that you guys are having barbecue conversations, which is just like seriously. You can ask me again. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: there is a lot of that. Uh, but the uh, and I was feeling that early on. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I was like, can't I just cook my sausages in my <laughs> yeah. own house in peace? But then I then I realised, and I, I think it's maybe more that it's yeah. There's the the stats are saying it could be in the balance i feel like well i want to get out and make my contribution Mm. i don't want to look back and say oh should i have done this should i have said yes to this and gone and spoke at it like i really want to make my contribution and if if it's not successful i feel like i can still feel like well you know what i i gave it my Mm. you know the best i could
1: So, what's next for this scholarship? What's your vision for it, and what do you what do you want to see happen?
0: Well, the best thing we did with the scholarship is we partnered with Griffith University, and the good thing about Griffith is they've always got the ambition of taking over the world, and, <laughs> and we're starting to have these discussions about making it the premier you know, Indigenous law scholarship in the country. So. We, we set up the scholarship. Um, you know, our first goal was to raise $25,000. Um, we're up, you know, and we thought, okay, we can do that. And we're up, that was close to two years ago. We're up around $200,000. So we are just sitting down with the university at the moment and saying, where, where to next? How can we sort of spread um, the the opportunities that we're starting to create? And so we're actually walking through that process. So it's really exciting Um it's really exciting to see people like Alicia and and Keely who's this year's recipient, but it's also exciting to think well we could actually have a really broad reach with this. Griffith, the great thing about the university is it's got the highest number of indigenous graduates of any university I think in the last year or two. But also it's got something like 67 undergrad lawyers. There's only 200 indigenous lawyers in the profession in Queensland, so you know, we get we get 10% of that each year coming to the legal profession. We start to make a really big impact. There's only five Indigenous barristers in Queensland, so, you know, we need we, we can actually make a significant change in getting those through um, to practising in the, the legal profession as solicitors, as barristers and hopefully going onto the bench.
2: I was just talking um, the other day and I was just like, oh, I can't wait till I'm able to be like someone like Josh and like giving back <laughs> to um, even like the recipients that are coming through. I want to also be like mentoring them and helping them through. Um, I think that's kind of their vision as well was to create this network within Mm. us as well. So I'd love to give back in that way. I've always had a dream of like setting up a scholarship or something like that as well. Well, you're taking it over actually. That's (laughs) our plan. You're you're taking it over in about 10 years. And the other
0: point is in about about five years' time, you're going to be like, oh, Josh, why did I ever think he was so good? It's all right. You can (laughs) punish him when you're on the high Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: right. (laughs) Well, Alicia George, I look forward to seeing you on the high court in the very near future um, and congratulations on being the uh, first recipient of this scholarship. You're a very worthy one and I, I love watching your career and seeing where it takes you. Oh, thank you. And uh, and it's just been great to have you on. And Josh Kremer, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs>
0: Uh, It's great to get on. It's great to be able to sit in the room with, you know, um, amazing people doing great things and it really energises me and and to see people like Alicia in particular coming through in the future, wow. You know, look out. um, If this is a type of Indigenous talent that is out there, we've got a really, really big future ahead of us.
1: You can follow Listen, Learn, Respect in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thanks for joining us.